Throughout my adult life, my focus has been on making the world a more beautiful place. Initially, I pursued this goal as a hairstylist, working on the external appearance of individuals to make them feel more beautiful. However, I wanted more, so I began to shift my focus to helping people make better choices and achieve greater beauty from within. As a transformational life coach, I specialize in helping you identify and change the limiting beliefs that may be holding you back. Join me each week as we discuss, interview, teach, and explore the fundamental principles of healthy relationships. Welcome to Conscious Conversations with Louisa. In today's episode of Conscious Conversations with Louisa, I'm speaking with Ross Miller. Thank you so much for accepting my invitation to being on here. I am so excited to highlight you to everyone. And um, please introduce yourself and let us know um, a little about you. Um, well, you you kind of laid it out there. Um, thanks for inviting me. Um, this is, I, I really honestly didn't know what to expect. Um, I was thinking about it today going, so do I, because as you mentioned, you know, I'm coming up next month, I'll have 15 years sober. So I'm used to speaking, um, to groups like this. And especially since COVID a lot of, a lot of speaking on zoom, um, just in recovery meetings. And, uh, in, in that format, we kind of tell our story and kind of what it was like, what it, you know, what happened and what it's like now. Um, and so I was kind of really finding, wondering what the dynamic was here. Um, like Louisa said, uh, I am, um, I'm actually CFO of the Fellowship House Sober Living. We are a nonprofit. We are the oldest um, sober living in the Caneo Valley. Um, and we're a nonprofit that my wife and I opened up our home 15 years ago when we got sober and um, I've been taking care of, well, right now I'm, I'm in my garage right now because I have, I just finished dinner. We have uh, 12 alcoholics and drug addicts that live with me um, and my wife and I, and we just finished dinner. We have dinner every night at five o'clock after work or after their meetings and uh, then we have our evening and kind of I'll get into that a little bit more about what that's like. Um, I'm also an architect here in the Canal Valley. I've been practicing for, I graduated in 96. So I've been practicing for quite a while now. Um, I'm a partner in a firm called 360 Architecture and Design in Westlake Village. Um, and I'm a yoga instructor. <laughs> and they were... Uh, it wasn't something I, I think what I'd like to say is I, I planned on becoming an architect. Uh, that was one thing that I'd written down when I was a kid. I don't know. I, it seems like I have quite a few people in here that are kind of from my genre. And I grew up on uh, as a kid with all those Dr. Seuss books. And uh, my mom, actually, when she came out a few years back, or not a few years, 10, 15 years ago, um, she brought one of the old Dr. Seuss books that had to do with, like, what is my profession? And when I was, like, four or five years old, I wrote in architect. And apparently, that's what I wanted to be back then. And uh, that's what I strived for. And I ended up, 
I ended up getting that. And I, I've been married for 30, 89, 34 years. So um, with a 33 year old daughter, got married young, um, became an architect, had a family, the whole genre. And then um, 15 years ago, kind of my, both my wife and I blew our lives apart. Um, and we stayed together. We got sober together and we've remained sober together since, uh, since 2018 of 2000, uh, no, April 18th of 2008 and March 25th of 2008 for my wife. Um, so she's getting ready to have her 15th birthday this month and I'll have 15 after in next month. And, uh, about halfway through our sobriety, I, um, I ended up taking a, taking a risk <laughs> Like Louisa knows that I'm all about following heart, following dreams and kind of recovery gave me the opportunity to not um, trying to think of the words to say, you know, step out, step out of the familiar. And um, I'm not a big gym person. Uh, working out is something that just doesn't appeal to me, um, but I just made the the leap of trying yoga. And uh, it, what happened was <clears throat> I'd made a decision that I needed to do something for, for me. I, I was about eight years sober, seven years sober. And I, uh, I decided on my lunch hour, I could try something like that place, orange theory or yoga or something to get away for an hour and do something to better my physical well-being. I've been working a lot on my spiritual well-being. I've been working a lot on the well-being of my family, the people around me, but I hadn't really focused on another part of the triad of being, being physically responsible for my, for my health. And I showed up at core power yoga, like on a Tuesday or Wednesday afternoon at lunchtime. And I was so frightened that day, Lisa, that I pulled up in the parking lot and I saw all these beautiful people coming out of the yoga studio and I'm all like, you know, this isn't for me. And I literally got back in my car, drove back to my office and went back to work. And then that voice the next day was like, you know, you should really give this a shot. And I, and I went over there and I did the same thing. I got out of my car. I saw the same people. And I just I was like, you know what? Just step through the fears. It's not about, you know, I like to share about the way I grew up was I was always comparing my insides to your outsides. And it was a losing bet every time. It was a losing bet because my perception of other people's happiness was something that I made up in my own mind. And I would say 99.9% .9 of it is completely false because I know nothing about it. it's my expectations, my beliefs. And, um, so I walked in there and I, I gave it a shot. And what I saw happening, which was so interesting, and it was so dynamic to my life of recovery. When I got sober, I, I had had, um, I'd been out on my own business-wise for about two years. And I had about 30 jobs on the board. I, had, I was really right at two-year mark, like really setting into it. But I was killing myself with drugs and alcohol. I, it was all about work. It wasn't about family. It was all about what I could get, what I could do, how I could 
control my own destiny when, which is like, you know, 30 years old, you're kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing this all. And the reality was I wasn't doing any of it. You know, I was in a position to see things coming into my life with this idea that I could control things with this idea that the things, you know, I, yeah, to a certain extent, my experience had set me in a position, but it, it wasn't what I've come to find it. You know, it's not always my doing. And, uh, when I kind of let go, I was kind of like, I was told I had to go to three meetings a day. I didn't go to rehab. I didn't, uh, I got sober on my couch. Um, and I did three meetings a day in Alcoholics Anonymous for a year, 7 a.m., noon, and night, 7 a.m., noon, and 6 p.m. for a year while I ran my business. And while I kind of, it gave me this, it, it taught me this idea of letting go that, that the world goes on without me. And if my if I'm in a better position to come at life from a place of love, from a place of kindness, selflessness, everything else will be taken care of. And and seven years later, it really reiterated itself in my business life. Um, I stepped away from the office. I'm running my own office, and I have employees. And I'm I'm like, you guys are in charge. I'll be back in two hours. I'm gonna. And I told him I'm gonna go do some yoga, and I'll come back. You guys got it. We'll be fine. And what I found was that as I took care of myself, as I took care of myself physically, emotionally, um, everybody around me took care of me also. Everybody around me took care of me also. And it wasn't that I asked them or I, I believe it's that life took care of me because I was taking care of life. And uh, what I found was that my business was growing while I was there less, which made no sense. And then um, I got asked, or they had a teacher training, and I'm like, I just wanted to do it. I wanted to try it, like like Louisa was sharing. It was on. The, it, it was something I was feeling really good, like that smile on her face. Right? It's like we we something feels good, and. And then I want more. And you know what? I do that too, Luis. I, I make these lists and I'm I'm trying these things. And all of a sudden I've got a list that's like this long. And I'm like, what did I do to myself? Because I'm trying to manage and control my experience instead of instead of being a part of it and enjoying that ride of the experience. And uh plain and simple, I did that teacher training just because I wanted to know why I felt better. I wanted to know what was happening internally, not really externally. Why, why? When I left, that I go back to the office and, and I really didn't worry about things because the truth is I set myself in a great position because the people that I brought on board that I asked to be a part of my life, of my business, I was able to give them full trust. There's a reason why I innately hired them, right? So why do I need to micromanage them? And through giving allowing them to grow. And it's the same thing that I learned in, in recovery of as I went through the steps and I, and I, and I got sober and I have, I still have, I have a sponsor. I sponsor a lot of young men. Um, but the more I give, the more the, the St. The St. Francis pair kind of says it all. You know, Lord, make me a channel of thy peace that where there's hatred, I may bring love. 
that where there's wrong, I may bring the spirit of forgiveness, that where there's discord, I may bring harmony. And it goes on, and you'll notice there's a verb at the beginning of each phrase of that, and that's the word bring. It's this action prayer, that it's not a prayer about praying to God about getting. It's a prayer about praying to God about giving. What can I bring to allow the world around me to open up and be of use instead of about self? And so I just planned on, a, I didn't plan on teaching. And uh, they said, they, they bribed me. They said, you, you speak well, you should teach. And I said, I'm an architect. I really can't take that time out. And they said, well, we'll give you free yoga if you teach twice a week. <laughs> and, and that was the, the gist of it. I said, I'll do it. And my wife agreed. She's like, yeah, we don't have to pay that monthly fee. And I get one extra person to, that gets a free yoga membership. So I was all in. And what I found was I, I came into the room and it was really, it was an amazing thing because I'm, I'm really a frightened child. I really have a lot of fear um, about getting in front of people and, and opening up. And I, and I, I learned I have learned and I experienced the learning of the truth. And the more I share my truth about who I am and, and where I am, um, there's nothing like it. What I showed up when I had that first class I taught, I had become, I'd been in that, in that yoga studio for a while and I made a lot of friends um, just practicing like Louisa comes and, and I know what it's like and like Lisa to you go into something, you make a lot of friends. And then I showed up there to teach and I was frightened. And when I walked through the room, I turned around and I looked and it was all my friends. They were there to support me. And from that moment on, I started to understand the idea of community, the true idea of community where you're able That's to. Really amazing because com coming from AA and mm -hmm. having that community and then going into this and, and saying this is where you felt the community. I, I'm just kind of fascinated that you knew you wanted to be an architect and you became one and, mm -hmm. and the, what it takes to know to follow your purpose and your vision and, and complete it. I, I'm curious, what was it like with both you and your wife uh, and having a child and and the first part of your marriage not being sober. And then how did you both really get together on the same page and move forward together? Like, how did that happen? Because that's, that's extra extraordinary. I mean, I coach a lot of people and that is one of the jaw dropping. How do, how do two people connect after years of partying together and, and not sober and then move forward together. Well, Sima grew up out here in the Caneo Valley. I'm originally from Oklahoma. I moved out here when I was 18 years old. I, I was one of those teenagers that I went to college one semester after school and I flunked out and I had a choice. I had a restart. I had the, I had the, I got a card from my stepdad. He said, here's a guy to ask, go out to Palm Springs he might be able to get you a job as a carpenter on, we're building the La Quinta Hotel right now. My stepdad worked for a bank. 
And I went out there. I drove my truck out here by myself. It was kind of my first leap of faith. I was just in between 18 and 19 years old. And I hopped in my car and I just left. I drove out here. I didn't know a soul. And uh, I got a, And I was leaving a kind of burnt down life as a teenager um, with a fresh start, not knowing anybody in California other than this man on a business card. And, um, and I showed up. I got a job as a carpenter's apprentice. And within the first two weeks, I was living with the biggest crystal meth dealer in the Coachella Valley. I had what we call in Alcoholics Anonymous, a geographic where we're trying to solve our problems by moving to a new area. The problem is we follow ourselves. And it just so happens, which I didn't know is where Palm Springs was where everybody went to party. From L.A., that's where they kind of went on, you know, spring break or things like that. And my wife, I was uh, my wife came out there. She I think I was by the time we got married, I was 21 and she was 20. But we met out in Palm Springs and um, and we got married uh, at like pretty much immediately. Um, and the reason, you know, we we fell in love. Um and I think that was the biggest thing that kept us together was that that innate love that we found in the beginning. Um, she was a girl that loved to party the way that I partied. And for the next 20 years, we built a family and we built a life. And we were both um, extreme examples of drug addiction and alcoholism. Yet we held it all together. A lot of people are kind of... Um, it's weird. People are kind of amazed by my story. Um, so I decided, um, I decided to go back to school to get my architecture degree. And uh, I went to a place called SciArc. It's Southern California Institute of Architecture. It's one of the top schools on the East Coast, on the West Coast here in Los Angeles. And um, I came out of that. And you got to now... You have to keep in mind that we have a, I have a daughter at the time when I go back to school, that's maybe three or four years old. Um, my wife and I are full-blown drug addict. I mean, we're both crystal meth opiates. Um, and I go back to school. I end up being valedictorian of the school. Um I end up coming out of that school working for the top, for top two top firms in the world at the time. I was a designer at Frank Gehry's office and I was a designer at Morphosis, which are pretty much what they call now the Starkitects. Um, I worked on Disney Concert Hall. I worked on the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao. Um, all this at that young age while drinking and getting loaded. Um, I grew up in where, where I grew up in the Midwest. It was like I had to. It was just you worked hard and you played hard and you kept things going. You kept everything tight to your vest. I kept family close. We all I did was I went to work. My wife took care of our family and my daughter. I went and I worked and I brought home a paycheck. And we just had this kind of very. I would call it a small life, but a big life at the same time. It was very tight knit. Yet we did a lot. Um, and my daughter was with us all the time. There was not a, uh, there was, 
there wasn't kind of what you see or what's portrayed of that everything's just a real shit show. Um, and we neglected our daughter. My daughter went on every vacation. We took, it was like, we made her part of our team. Um, my wife said, don't ever bring anybody outside into the house and we will always be fine. Does that make sense? Don't let any outside influences come in and it will just be us and we can take care of each other. And in, and we actually, my wife, she grew up in the Canal Valley and her dad built the Woodlake Bowling Alley. If you guys know the Woodlake Bowling Alley, that was the family bowling alley. Um, she grew up in that bowling alley and she, I'm an only child and she came from a family of four sisters and two brothers. And they all grew up in that bowling alley. Um, so I'm going to interrupt. Go ahead. No, you can interrupt me. I know I start talking and no, I love it. When she said, no, this is our little unit. No one comes in. Did that also include her parents and family or was it like when, because. Oh no, that family was. So the other side of this, this story is that when I had come, when, when, when I was out in the desert, um, there was a, uh, there was a bad, I was actually um, dealing draw. I was dealing crystal mouth big quantities from Oceanside to Santa Maria to the, to Indio. And I was, like I said, with one of the biggest crystal meth dealers and a drug deal went bad and there was a lot of stuff missing and I got held hostage for two weeks. And if you've ever seen the movie, the Salton sea with Val Kilmer, check it out. It was, uh, it was like you see in the movies. It was very scary. I disappeared for two weeks and then I showed back up and she said, you're getting out of here. So, and that's why I brought up about her, her family in the bowling alley. Her dad said, he just move in. And we took care of my father-in-law for the first 12 years of our marriage. She was the youngest of six and her dad, he was 55 when he had her. So they were like traveling buddies their, her entire life. It was the kind of picturesque, the dad with his youngest daughter, that's his pride and joy. And he invited me to come in and be a part of their family. So I went from an only child that grew up on the other side of the tracks in the middle of Oklahoma to an instant family in Thousand Oaks, California. And, and that's how, that's what I meant by keeping tight. We took care of him. And what happened was when he passed away at 89, um, we kind of fell apart. It was, it was watch. I had never experienced death at that close. Um, and it, my, my wife lost her best friend. And that was kind of that transition where we finally went off the deep end. Um, it really drove our drug addiction and alcoholism started to drive a wedge between us through grief. And grief was the catalyst in 2003, I think it was, 2001, 2002, where, um, and this was at the time when um, Oxycontin had just come on the scene here in the Caneo Valley or basically nationwide. Um, we lived in Lynn Ranch here across the freeway. Um, her father had built his house there in 1962. You'll like this for an acre and a quarter, 4,000 square feet for $32,000. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and um our the neighbor who was renting um just happened to be the 
head nurse for, there was a doctor at that time that the doctor and the pharmacist ended up getting, um, I think over a hundred years in prison for the Oxycontin ring that they had set up in Thousand Oaks. And wow. they were my neighbor. And my wife started doing Oxycontin then. And at that point in time, and I bring this up because I mentioned that innate love that held Sim and I to get that I believe held our bond together all these years. That first time there was my wife got tried to get sober in 2000. I think 2004 or 2005. And um, at that point in time, she weighed 87 pounds. And her body was literally um, dying in front of me. And I didn't even know. I thought she was sick. I just thought she had the flu. And uh, her sister came and was just, she was beside herself that we had let this come to this. And I got my wife into treatment. Um, and she tried to get sober by herself. And she stayed sober for a year, but I wouldn't. I had been, I had gotten to a point in my life where I didn't really care. I still loved her, but I wasn't willing to give up the one thing that it, what I said, I, that had gotten me to where I am. I was a full believer that the reason that I got to where I am was everything that I did to get me there. When the truth was, it wasn't anything I did to get me there. It was me being in the right place. It was me doing the right things and the drugs and alcohol just kind of took me down. And then I got her getting loaded again with me. And in 2006, she went off the deep end again. She weighed under a hundred pounds and the Ventura County Sheriff showed up at our door. And uh, cause she wanted me out of the house. So I'm, I wasn't at that time, Louisa, that, um, that kind soul that you know now it had stolen everything from us. And when she came back, she went to treatment. And when she came back, she said, she didn't tell me I had to get sober. She didn't give any demands. She looked at me and she just said, you know, we tried this before. We will die if, if we both don't do this. You can do what you want, but I have to be, I have to do this a certain way. And in that moment, I said, I'm sorry, but I'm leaving. And I walked out the front door like the little kid carrying his bags, running away from home. Problem was, I didn't have any bags in my hand. And I made it about four houses down. And I had that moment. Um, I had a moment when I realized I was giving up everything in my life to just do what I wanted to do. And something in me made me turn around and come walk right back and knock on the door and ask if I could come in the house. And, and I said, I would give it a year and I was willing to try. And, uh, and here we are today getting ready to celebrate 15 years. That I, I've been doing the interviews for so long and I have never been choked up before like on, on this because it's so easy for you to have just 
walked out and just been right and righteous, you know, and and had all of the evidence of whatever on earth you wanted to create just to be stay right. And you chose because there's that always that little voice Mm -hmm. that is speaking to us. And, and I thank God in that moment, that voice was powerful for you and that you followed it. But that's also what created you to have, I'm fascinated with like, I'm sober and, and you'd be proud. I'm actually, um, a little over 30 days sober. I just decided the day after Grammys to stop drinking and I haven't been drinking and it feels fabulous. (laughs) And I've done hot yoga for 13 days in a row. But like for me, those moments of clarity are so powerful and and huge decision-making. I had intended not to tell the story, but I'm going to actually say it. So when I was, 17 years old, I was looking for a therapist and I took my parents' insurance card and I thought I was calling a therapist just to get some support, right? Well, I didn't realize it called an inpatient service unit and I did it. And so they looked at my parents' insurance and decided I would make a fabulous inpatient um, person. And I call it my $70,000 slumber party. And I had roommates and I had I I met alcoholics and addicts I'd never been around. I grew up in a Catholic school with like pulling up my socks and, you know, saddle shoes of the whole fun yard, but I'd never been around addicts before. And I got in there and all of a sudden I realized what the world was. And, and I was like, I think I'm in here because they need my help. Like they really need me. And I had no idea how I had ended up there, but I met this girl who who was also 17 and she was magical. And she just was a ray of sunshine, like how I experienced you when I'm in the yoga room and how I experienced Lisa, just a ray of sunshine. And I'm like, how does she not know how magical she is? How is she not experiencing how she lights up a room? So when we left the center, I heard that she um, overdosed and died. And I remember thinking, what if, what if I have that light and I don't know it because she had no idea. What if I might be special and I don't know it? What if we all have something special about us and no one really knows it because she just died. Hmm. And it, it did introduce me to this world that scared me half to death. And I did, I ended up not really ever playing with it too much because I was so afraid of it because I what I had seen from when I was so young. But I was always curious to mental health support, um, knowing that I was in there for a reason because there was a purpose for my life. And I tend to gravitate towards everybody who I find is so magical. And I I totally get the concept of like comparing my insides to other people's outsides. Like I remember, and I also um, at that time, remember going to meetings that I didn't know what I was doing there at the time, but I remember them saying, don't leave before the miracle happens. And I was like, if I could take that concept and put it everywhere, I bet you it'll change my life Mm. of like, don't quit. So I'm just how, so you guys get sober. At what point did you 
then have a sober living center and and decide that you guys are now going to host everyone in your home with this. So nothing, I mean, it's interesting. Um, the greatest gifts in my life are never planned. They just aren't. They're, they're, it's, it's never something that I've set out to do. Um, they're all based on circumstance, um, how I show up in the circumstance, how I act in the circumstance, and how I surrender in the circumstance. It was 2008 when we got sober. And I'm sure all of you guys remember 2008. Um, and to be an architect in 2008 or in the building industry, um, it was a shutdown. I had my home. Work life was still, you know, barely hanging on. Um, and we're all deciding to get sober. And my daughter at the time is graduating high school. So it wasn't, you have a teenager too. It's not a very, ple it wasn't pleasant in that first year. Um, we started allowing people to stay with us out of necessity to meet the, meet the rent. And it was like, but there was a stipulation with staying with us. You had to be sober. You had to be doing what we were doing if you wanted to live in our home. And so we just started letting a few people stay with us to, to make the rent and, uh, and the treatment centers and look, we were getting sober. So we're, when you come into Alcoholics Anonymous, um, you know, part of the thing is service commitments, doing all these different things. And my wife had got a job at a treatment center. Um, I was doing anything to kind of make ends meet. We were, I was speaking at meetings. I was, I was doing everything that they were telling me to do was to show up, be a part of, of things. And, um, and the treatment centers and kind of started seeing people that were staying with us that were getting better. They saw, somebody saw, people saw something happening that we didn't see. Um, and then all of a sudden we would get calls can you, from somebody, you know, be like, this is such and such at Horizons or whatever it is, that inpatient that you called. Hey, we have somebody here that needs a place to stay when they get out. Would you be willing? And, and we were like, well, if they want to do our, what we're doing, you know, here's what we do. And my wife is, she grew up with six, you know, she grew up in a family. And I didn't really grow up in that kind of family. I had a great family, but being an only child to a family of six, it's a whole different dynamic. And so she grew up in kind of this big household and, and knew, and she ran it as a young girl. She was the one that ran everything because her dad trusted her. Um, and so they started, people started sending people to us. And, um, and my wife was working at the treatment center and uh, it's so wild we basically just kind of opened up our house. We're like, okay, we're going to be the fellowship house sober living. 
And you come with us, you stay with us, here's the rules. And the rules slowly developed. We started building a grassroots program in our house. My wife liked to call it the five-star salvation army um, because we live well. It's my home. This is my garage that we've, I got a big TV on the wall. This is where everybody watches TV. They get TV once, uh, they get it on the weekends and one night a week. Other than that, they're working their programs. Um, and uh, at two years sober, she helped this woman up in at a treatment center in Malibu and her husband was just really off his rocker. Long story short, I ended up, both of us ended up, we had somebody helping us here, went out to North Carolina for a year and started helping people out in North Carolina, um, specifically that group. And ever for the past, who 13 years now, we've had people from being flown out from North Carolina to stay at the fellowship house. We've had people flown out from Texas to stay in our home. Um, we've had people flown out from Colorado and Michigan to stay in our home. And generally they stay with us for one to two years and they come in and they become a part of our family and, um, and they grow in this kind of five-star boot camp. <laughs> and we treat it what it is. It's family. Um, we believe that just like our relationship lost it didn't lose it didn't lose the love the love was never lost our hearts were lost and the fellowship house rebuilt our hearts and god rebuilt our hearts we um our program is basically we live in this for the first 10 years my wife and i lived in this house with them 24-7, my wife worked 24 hours a day, seven days a week, taking care of this family. Um, four years ago, we got a condo about literally three minutes down the street at the bottom of the hill. I'm in Newberry Park at Fentu, and she got a place right down there. So she's here from eight in the morning when I leave till eight at night when when I, I'm home at five, but we all have dinner at five. She takes care of everybody from eight till eight at night. And I'm on the night shift from eight at night till eight in the morning. Um, and we've been doing that for the past, you know, all these years. Um, what happens is everybody in this house is up at 530 in the morning. We do morning meditation, morning readings. You do it on your own. We don't do it as a group. Um, and we all go get ready. We go to the morning meeting here in town, 7 a.m. Everybody comes back. I go to work. They go to the gym. Then they go to the uh, they go to the gym or they go to yoga. Then they go to the noon meeting. Then they come back. They do step work. Then they learn to cook. They learn to keep a clean, clean room. We try to get them back into society to get jobs. So we have, over all these years, we have a lot of connections to help people get back to work. Um, this isn't a place where people kind of sit around. Uh, you have to be busy out doing living life. Um, we all have dinner together as a family every night at five o'clock. And then after dinner, we all go to a meeting and we come home and we do it again the next day. Wow. It is absolutely amazing. I am so, I, I mean, I don't know about you. Been sober living for 15 years. Is this what? All of them are like, or is this just yours? Is, no. I have no idea. 
This is no, we're just, we're a little, we're a little bit different because we're a family. We, that's the dynamic that we, those people, the reason why we're a nonprofit is um, those people I helped in North Carolina, they had a lot of money. And we were like, you should, you should help us help all these people. And, you know, they go, you know how we're going to help you? We're going to show you how you can become a nonprofit so that this house stays the way it is and money doesn't ruin things. I love it. I love it. And at two years in, we did all the paperwork ourselves, got an accountant, did everything, made the filing, and we were accepted to become a licensed nonprofit so that we could serve the community. We're sponsored by Amgen has helped us. Target has helped us. The community provides to help all these, I like to call them kids, but right now I've got a 65-year-old. I've got um, one in their 40s, about six in their mid-30s, a couple in their 20s, and I got one kid who's an ex-Marine that's like 19. Wow. I actually, I was talking to you a couple of weeks ago about one of my friends who mm-hmm. called me and said, can I live in your backyard in a tent? And I was like, no. And then, but she's not ready to do anything no. different yet. So, but she will be. Um, I want to give everyone an opportunity to share feedback, ask questions. And, and Ross, I mean, I'm, I, I hope am, I wasn't boring. I'm like, <laughs> I I am holding back tears. I am so grateful that you're here. As a matter of fact, before I open it up to everyone else, this is a question I'm asking everybody because everyone asks me every time after the call, how do you get these amazing people on here every other Tuesday? So what had you say yes to me to being on here? I've learned to always say yes. I love it. I've learned, I've the, the greatest gifts come from walking through a fear of saying yes. There's no reason why I shouldn't say yes. There's a reason I believe in my heart that because through experience, that the more that I have the opportunity to, to share my experience, that it can change a life. It's happened multiple times. Yeah. Absolutely. And and that becomes the common denominator and factor with sharing. So thank you. All right. Now I will be quiet for a second. And who would like to share feedback or questions? <clears throat> well, I had a question. I, it's not really a question. I, and I may have missed it at some point. So I apologize. But, you know, I always find that people who have a broader context in their life, something that higher purpose and it starts off you know, mankind and society and organization and team and group. And the the small, the closer you get down when you're operating on an individual level, you know, you're right next to the suck hole, you fall off. But when you have bigger rungs of this ladder that are broad, you just fall to the next one, fall to the next one, fall to the next one. And there's all this stuff to keep you, keep you from going down that rabbit hole, going at the bottom. And I think, you know, it, when did you realize that higher purpose for you was there was there a specific moment or was it just besides the you know hitting rock bottom but the higher purpose of it aspect how did that I think evolve in your mind i think it's 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 a it's a gradual um there's a there's a that, that's an interesting 
um, take because in in the program you you do the steps and the steps are to so that you can find a power greater than yourself they don't push you to god um it's to to the 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 saying is deep down in every man woman and child is the fundamental idea of god and that fundamental idea has been kind of blocked by self-will that isolation that that minute self that you kind of described just being that that and um and the idea or the concept is to do a self-examination a have a sponsor start becoming being into this program doing some work um going out making amends to your relationships and then living a life of service basically um and some people come into it quickly and some people come into it, what they call the educational variety. And, and the book talks about the, um, the newcomer finally realizes that he's undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life. That he's, you know, this, what we call a spiritual experience comes over a period of time. And through the experience of what I said of saying yes, of when I know in my heart that I need to be going to the office, if I just get this client, it will solve my problem. I have a mistaken idea of what's going to make me happy in that, that the money is going to do it. The relationship's going to do it. If my wife acted this way, if my boss, if the client only gave me this much more, I would be like set. But it's never been when I was able to sit back and really look at that. It's never been the case. I've always been, I, I've achieved these things and I've never gotten a full there that joy and 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 um louisa mentioned the word that popped out in my and when she was talking to me was this idea of a purpose-driven life my purpose was me that's what i learned i was told go to school get a job get a family that's your purpose but nobody handed me a book as a kid that's like, hey, this is how you kind of, I was walking through life shooting from the hip, thinking this is how to do things, which I didn't really have any direction. And so like stepping through the door of fear to the yoga, step in and meeting these people in my life and, and being, there's a prayer that I had to learn when I first got sober and it's called the set aside prayer. And it's God, please enable me to set aside everything I think I know for an open mind and a new experience. Help me to see the truth about my work. At that time, it was my wife because we were not happy with each other. But what it did is it was for me to reiterate to myself that I am set aside. And it's not that I have to let go of it all or it's wrong. It's, it's a request of this busy mind Please set it aside so I can have an open mind and a new experience. Allow me to that. Allow me to try. I mean, Lisa's jumping into teacher training. I mean, come on. That's like jumping through one of the biggest fears. When I did it, I was like, oh, dear God, here I go. What did I sign myself up for? When I went for that first job interview at whatever job it was, or I jumped back into school and I'm like, I'm 24 years old. I'm never going to do it. 
I go there and there's like all these 18 year olds. And all of a sudden I'm like, dude, I know what the fuck I'm doing. <laughs> these guys don't have a clue. And that experience over time, I just last two years, three years when COVID, I got in into doing breath work. Um, and then that projected me into my friend said, hey, have you ever done these ice baths? And I'm like, are you kidding me? I've been doing ice baths for the past two years now. And, and I would just, all I did was I said, yes. And that network that you described, mm-hmm. it's amazing. It is, it's like, and it has nothing to do with what I do, but it has everything to do with how I am and how I can be in the world. And I just wanted to follow up real quick before Kevin has a question. I know he has a question, but um, the way you were saying was something that I know that Louisa, we've worked on and, and she, we've talked about in other sessions is about everything that you thought was going to make you happy. You had all these expectations of how things should go. And really, once you left, got rid of those expectations, obviously, I bet things started to make much more sense to you. It's you know? so it has so much freedom. Mm-hmm. And I tell guys that I work with. Um, I'm because uh, I, I work with a lot of younger people and I'm like, why do you got to know everything? Mm-hmm. I go, do you like Christmas or Hanukkah? They're like, yeah, I love it. And I go, do you want to know what the fucking present is? And they're like, are you, why are you stealing the joy out of being surprised <laughs> that you need to know what's best for you? Because what's happened is the joy of living has opened up because I don't know what's coming. And I've got enough years of experience in life now. Nothing's going to kill me. There's nothing. Even 2008 didn't kill me. We lose money. We gain money. Money is the easiest thing to make. It really is. If I put my nose to the grindstone and I'm focused. I've always survived. And I've been through it. I mean, if you're old enough, you've been through a few market crashes. We've all lost. But we're all still here. Thank you. <laughs> so true. <laughs> so so true. I don't want to be hindered by expectations, but it's a hard thing. It is. It's a hard thing to let go of the expectation because the, the idea that it's going to bring me joy. But if I can kind of split that thing and be like, set it aside for an open experience, new experience, the new experience could possibly be way better. Maybe it may be way worse. But it's something new. I love it. Kevin O. All right. So so I got I got two questions. But um the first one's kind of easy. Um you talk about how you know you're an architect during the day, you're doing all this stuff with the fellowship house during the nights. Um how do you get that work life? balance and still spend quality time with your wife and so you know um i think because we're both on the same plane we both have the same mission um when i get up in the mornings i'm here uh, i'm up at five every morning and i have about uh, an hour of just what i call it's my med- look my meditation is not that i'm sitting there kind of cross-legged and my meditation is sitting out on the balcony cup of coffee with a cigar 
And I'm thinking about the day ahead. Just this, what that idea, Louisa, the 24 hours, right? What can I do for the day? And what do I need to get in order for the day? Um, not to build expectations, but what do I need to show up for? Um, then I go down to the condo at 7.30 and I'm with my wife till 8.30. And we have our hour together where I make her tea. She comes down. We spend that time, a little morning devotion together. We read some books. We talk about where we're at, what we need, how we need to help each other. Um, we stay in con, and then I go to work. I'm at work or I go teach yoga. Um, so I either go to the office at about 8.30 or nine, about nine o'clock, or I go teach at 8.45 and I don't go into the office until 11. Pretty much only two days a week do I go into the office before 11 o'clock. Um, and then I focus on my work. Uh, then come home, we're together at home at night for dinner. And, and that was kind of the dynamic. And I'm glad you asked because like I said, I grew up an only child, so I didn't really have this understanding of like big family life. And this home and the people that come into it, they are family. I am invested in their recovery. I'm invested in them coming to life. And when I think what gives the strength and the purpose in that is to see someone recover, to be a part of somebody's bottom, to I've married a couple of a uh, the, the few years back, the guys wanted me to marry them. They made me get a license. I had to go to the that online and get whatever you do to get where you can marry people. Um, I've watched them have children now. I've watched and I've had two deaths in my home due to an overdose. So I've seen the beauty and I've seen the tragedy. And the ability to help bring somebody out and to find their purpose is creates that blending of life, so to say. So it's no longer about what am I kind of, how am I finding time for myself? My time is everybody's is really what it comes down to. And, and it's worked that way for my wife and I, we, we were, we look, we've been married 20 years before we, we, we started this. And both of us, I know 100%, she would say the same thing. My marriage has never been happier when it's about somebody else. She feels more taken care of today than she ever did before. When I just came home and gave her a check and we had dinner and we kind of watched TV. <laughs> now, now it's like, you know, we, Hey, we went out for date night the other night and we went to Farfalla and had dinner. And that was our, that was our date night. We had an hour and a half to go have Italian food over in Westlake. And we came home, she went down to the condo and I stayed here. <laughs> Well, and I, and I think you just kind of answered my other question, too, about the fellowship house. I know you're changing the lives of others. And, and I was going to ask, what what is the greatest takeaway and how is that changing you and your wives' lives? Yeah. It's 
how it's changed. It's the dynamic of our relationship has grown tenfold. Um, and I, but I never, I never experienced that, what it was like to have a family to that, to that extent where she was in a family of, you know, six kids and father, the, her mom died from alcoholism when she was 13. Um, but I didn't grow up with that experience. So I, I like to say we're the kind of the dysfunctional Brady bunch um, in that it's just this group of insane people all gathered together under a roof, but with the same purpose. I have a quick question. Are people allowed to have guests? Like if can, can anybody who lives there invite a friend over or. Yeah, they can. Friends can come over as long as they're sober or they, they, they don't have to be sober, but they cannot come loaded. Um, family always no, no sleepovers or anything like that. Okay. But yeah, they have visitors. It's kind of, it's in between inpatient, outpatient. Okay. Yeah. And, 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 and Ross, just one more thing. I, I think yeah. it's beautiful what you're doing. Um, a couple of years ago, my wife's little sister uh, passed away to due to alcoholism. So um, I, I really love what you're doing. So thank you. It's awesome. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Corrine. Miss Corrine, you got to unmute, babe. We would love to hear you through. I always do that. Um, I want to say thank you for sharing that story, your story with us. It, it's very inspirational. And what you're doing to help people is really touched my heart. The fact that you are just helping so many people recover and be the best that they can, that they can be. Um, but my question to you is you were talking about the fear, like the fear when you went to the yoga class and you didn't want to go in. Um, how did you, how do you break through that fear? Cause there's a lot of times, sometimes maybe I don't want to post my work on Instagram. Will people like it? I, I feel stupid or other situations where I don't put myself out there based on fear, mm. break through that. There's a great acronym that I got from Alcoholics Anonymous that fear stands for false evidence appearing real. I like that. That was one of the things that helped me in the beginning. Um, and I really want to make it clear that you know, I, I fall into fear daily um, just about because, and I believe fear is also because I care. So it, it's also fear is self-preservation, caring for yourself. Um, but when we take it to a point that it, that it holds us back and that's kind of the, the work that I had to do um, in recovery um, we do a, what's called a fear inventory um, that we look at the fears and how they've held us back. And there's a statement that I love um, that's in the reading that says fear is like an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence is shot through with it. And my sponsor really laid that out to him and he goes, imagine a sweater Ross and you have one thread that's, 
that's just rolling through your entire sweater. And that one thread is fear. And it's just weaved its way in and out through your life. Now, how can we work on the fears? The fears were coming for me was part of the work is finding that higher power or God um, and practice praying and start to learn to have a dialogue. I So look, I came from Oklahoma. <laughs> I grew up in the Bible Belt. I was told I was going to hell when I was five years old. And I really don't know why I was told that. But it put a taste in my mouth about religion. And when I got sober, I was like, and they said, oh, you got to find God. And I'm like, <laughs> here we go. I knew there was a catch. And um, there's a part in the book. And, and I think this is really important for everybody. There's a part in the book that says, my friend suggested what seemed like a novel idea. He said, why don't you choose your own conception of God? And then it says that statement hit me hard. It melted away the I, it melted away the snow in the icy intellectual mountain from which I stood and shivered. Nobody in my life in 40 years asked me what I wanted God to be. And in that moment, I'm like, so I get to, I get to make up what I want God to be. And my sponsor was like, yes. I said, I want God to be like my grandpa. Yeah. And he goes, can he give you the power to stay sober? And I go, I don't know. And he goes, well, why don't we just try? And I said, okay. And he said, from now on, when I ask you to pray, imagine your grandpa. And I'm like, beautiful. And from that point on, the prayers that I learned, everything was like, and it, the prayers are not about getting, but how can I give? And even in fear, you know, part of what I shared earlier is about making amends. And um, we go out to make right the damage we've done in the past. And we go, I went to employers, I went to, I went to everybody to tell them about my alcoholism and that I would never get over my drinking and using till I've done everything to straighten out my past. Here's what I've done wrong in our relationship. And can you tell me anything else that I left out? And then if they don't say anything, I'm like, look, really, if there's even a little thing, you're not going to hurt my feelings. You might save my life because I'm trying to, I want us to always see each other and that I never feel I have to look away in shame or anything that I did something. And what doing those little things and Louise has heard me say this, and I know Lisa has. Esteemable acts create self-esteem. That esteemable act of walking through a fear, and it doesn't matter. I, you know what? I'm on Instagram, and I'm I, Louisa. Here's me share. I get in front of a room. You don't. You see, like from here up, but I am not like this Instagram yogi, and I'm not like this guy that balances on one arm. I, I'm somebody that comes in. I, I'm very. I'm very conscientious at 55 and, but I have to walk through that to know that it's okay. Feelings have never killed me. Feelings have hurt me, my own feelings. But as I've built a relationship with bringing in a God of my own understanding into my life, I've always been taken care of. And 
you know, nine times out of 10, those leaps of faith of walking through the fear, it makes the fear lessen, brings up my self-esteem, allows me to grow and try new things. And all my best gifts have come through failures. So why not fail? It just means I got to knock off the dust, knock the red off my face from the, from what, uh, embarrassment. <laughs> embarrassment only hurts up here. <laughs> I hope that answered it. Yes, it did. Thank you. <laughs> I also appreciate the comment that you, you get to choose what your concept of God was because I was raised Jehovah's Witness. So I have a lot of, stuff where I'm like a lot oh. of baggage. Yeah. Southern Baptist. Gee. <laughs> it's like I like that. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Anyone else? Ross, I lived in Oklahoma for three years, so I could <laughs> relate <laughs> to what it was like. Um and I enjoyed it also thoroughly at a whole other level. But mm -hmm. I definitely never thought a kid from out here in Malibu would be living for in Oklahoma for three years, but I absolutely did made the best of it. I never thought a kid from Oklahoma would be rebuilding Malibu. Yeah, isn't that funny? So you know, and and that's I wanted to chime in on that. You know, all of this work, and that's the thing. This life, I came into this life of recovery. This idea of saving my life, my family, doing something different. And Woolsey fires hit. Mm -hmm. And I was 10 years sober. And I, all that got me to a point that when those hit or when the shootings hit, I, I was there and it gave me strength to do, to be, to understand that I am part of a community that's there to serve and not take, to rebuild mm -hmm. and, and live and be a part of, instead of what I talked about, my wife was like, we stay close knit, we'll be okay. And when we opened up our hearts and let go of what the thing we thought that was so dear to us was just us. And now look where that's kind of come tenfold of, I never thought I could be a part of, I didn't understand what it was like to be a part of life. Right. AJ, were you trying to unmute? I want to make sure you're able to share. No. Yeah. I, I love that you, added to the part of staying close and then opening up because, you know, I believe in marriages, we have these expectations and beliefs of what it's supposed to look like. And because we're doing it with somebody else and, and their baggage starts to, it's all, you know, when it's someone else's stuff, it, it's frustrating when it's ours. It's like, Oh, be compassionate. It's my ouchie. And, you know, and it, it's, it's fascinating to have survived 
alcoholism and drug addiction together and then how beautiful it is and how magnificent it is to turn the corner and be so open. And and, and I love seeing you at yoga because one of the things that the moment that I decided that I really needed you here and to share with us is the day that you came in and, and shared vulnerably about how during COVID you were getting up at three in the morning to do the yoga on the beach mm-hmm. and wh- why you did that. And I remember um, when I was pregnant with my son and, and I was supposed to be on bed rest and I wasn't allowed to go into work. And I did anyways with an IV drip in my leg because I was so afraid my clients would leave me if I didn't like, I really like I risked my pregnancy and went into the salon with an IV drip in my leg because I was so afraid if I didn't, my clients wouldn't be there when I needed to go back. Mm -hmm. And that day when you shared, I was like, I cannot believe that how beautiful it was to have you share and, and and share the vulnerability around it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a crazy time, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. But- it was it was so it was so poignant because I had people reaching out to me and they were just like, what are we doing? And I just took the lead from what I'd done in every different house. Like, well, I'll come out and go to the beach if you guys want to show up. And then I mean, I couldn't believe how many people showed up at the beach. And but it was cold. But it was there was, but it was that one thing of what you know, I was like, I cannot believe I'm getting up and doing this. And I'd wake up and I'm like, oh, dear God, it's going to, you know, and but you get there and then you go through the pain and the beauty's there. Right. And we get out on the beach, the sun's coming up, dolphins are, you know, like, why would I miss this? It's I've got to quit telling myself the stories. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of when I was 17 and I was taking yoga uh, aerobics classes and we're outside the room and you could hear the music bumping and all of a sudden like the doors open and and it's everybody's going in kind of like the hot yoga room in the morning and everybody picks their spot and before you get there you're like I'm so tired I don't want to go but then you're in the room and for me I always heard the instructor speaking up at the front of this uh, room and in my head I was always the one doing it in my head but I never had the the courage yet to actually take that on. I, I promise I will before I end this life, but I will be a, a teaching a class. But then I found my space in off of Zoom because like it's 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 my baby step to being able to do that. And it started in here. Yeah. Like, you know, during it was March of 2020, literally as COVID started. I started hosting Zoom rooms, which I didn't even know how to like log in at first. And it was what, and while everybody is like, oh my God, trauma, trauma, trauma. I really so totally enjoyed the opportunity of doing something completely different than new. And mm-hmm. I have to say, I'm I, what I really need to acknowledge in here is each and every buddy in this room being on, being present, connected because we all could be watching TV right now. We could all be doing anything else and we're here, we're connecting and we're changing lives together. And I know that it, they'll everybody hears what they hear here. And then 
the sentences will continue playing in our head later. And just like, you know, I learned um, the serenity prayer, going to AA and OA and all of those meetings. And, and when I was having panic attacks at night, the only way I would be able to sleep through the night was repeating the serenity prayer over and over again until I'd fall asleep. I, I, I could, I would literally dial 911 on my phone because I thought I was having a panic attack. And then I would finally fall asleep. And in the morning, I'd look at my phone and it still had 911 on it. And I'd remember my night. And well, I like that you said sentences in our heads. And sentences become words, and words become action, and action changes lives. So it's like the ability for you all to be come together like this, while it may seem small, we really don't see the greater, bigger picture of the influence that really happens. Mm -hmm. The connections that happen. Now I know to look across the street from Frank's house in Malibu on Wandermere. And, <laughs> and then all of a sudden these, these, these webs start to interlace and then community grows stronger and deeper and wider. So I think it's beautiful what you're doing. Thank you. I am so grateful. You gave us your time, your wisdom, your love, your being here with us. And I am so proud of Lisa for signing up and being at teacher training. I cannot wait to take your classes. I love seeing you in the mornings. And I love each and every single one of you for being on and really being unstoppable. Lisa, you unmuted. Do I get Thank to hear you? <laughs> it, it is really magical what we create here together. And I, I love that, uh, Tess inspired me to do lives. And I I literally have, it, it's, I think it's been over a month on that one too. And I hear her lives and I started doing them. And, you know, even if I'm not perfect, I actually even love that because a year from now, I'm going to look back and be like, look at how much I've grown. Right. Yeah. So it's a ton of fun. Does anyone want to say anything before we hop off for the evening? Miss Tara. Tara is going to be driving two hours tomorrow morning to come get a haircut by me. And then two hours back. That is a four hour trip. That's, for that's commitment. <laughs> <laughs> that's how good the haircuts are. Oh, but, yes. And you know I love her because I'm missing Ross's class tomorrow. <laughs> so that's pure love. <laughs> nice. <laughs> wow. I wanted to just say, I don't know if you saw, I was putting in the chat. Um, I've been listening, but I'm like rearranging to making space for some other things in here. And I just want to say thank you for sharing such an amazing and incredible life journey with us that was super powerful and i can relate in some ways um not with hosting the safe house but addiction and recovery and all those things as well um and some crazy stories too and so um you know I, that that just really moved me substantially i want to say thank you so much for the work that you're doing you and your wife and um, it really takes an incredible couple for you to stay through all of that and become such 
a connected and, you know, to, to come out on the other side through all of that is just a powerful, powerful testimony of your love and, um, you know, how much you guys really want that. And again, thank you so much for, thank you, Tara. yes, yeah. definitely. Thank you. Thank you. I, w- I was going to bring Tara into hot yoga, but then we realized it would ruin her blow dry. It would ruin her hair. <laughs> <laughs> So vanity still is winning here. Yeah. <laughs> but I will come one of these days, maybe next there time. Go. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, everyone. Have the most magical evening. And Kevin, it was fabulous seeing you. BJ, thank you for joining us. And thank you, everyone, for being on. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ross. I will see you Thursday morning. Okay, I'll be there. Thank you. It was really nice meeting everybody. Thanks. Thank you.